are listening to Lockdown Chats with City of London Symphonia, featuring Alexandra Wood in conversation with Brett Dean. Hello everybody, a very warm welcome. I'm Alexandra, I'm the leader and creative director of City of London Symphonia and today I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to the wonderful Brett Dean. Brett, thank you very much for joining me and giving up your time. I really appreciate it. Alex, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, now, I was trying to think how to describe you, Brett, because you're so fantastic at many facets of music. You're a composer, performer, conductor, director, um, curator of programmes, festivals. Do you, I mean, traditionally, a musician in this kind of old sense of the word probably was all those things. I mean, when we look back sort of, 18th and early 19th century do you really see yourself as all of those all of the time or does it sort of ebb and flow depending on what project you've got coming up or indeed sort of through the path of your career maybe one has predominated yeah um well it does go through different phases i mean the the composing part came relatively late uh, I was I was a late starter as far as composing was concerned. Um, so I really only got into it in my thirties. And you know, my my first big orchestral piece premiered when I was in my mid thirties, for example. Um, and yeah, so up until that point, obviously performing had been the main thing. Conducting too came much much later. Uh, although I studied conducting. Uh, when I was at college in in Australia. And my viola teacher, um, a wonderful man called Jean Couro, who sadly just passed away only about half a year ago, um, he was also my conducting mentor and gave me my first couple of opportunities to to conduct ensembles and small orchestras while I was still a student in Brisbane. Um, But then it didn't really sort of kick in as another aspect of what I do until, you know, I was invited then regularly to conduct my own works first and foremost, and then from there it sort of branched out. Um, but as far as the, the, I'd have to say, I think probably composing, well, it's certainly the thing that occupies my mind most of the day, um, or at least mm-hmm. most of the time. Um, at the same time, I couldn't imagine only composing and never actually being part of the performing aspect. I think the the two feed off one another, whether that's then playing viola as a performer or or conducting with an orchestra, but that that connection with musicians, the live aspect, the the sort of continual remembering what that's like to not only to, to write pieces but to bring them to life Mm. be that my own music or or other people's music that that's a fundamental part of it if you um came to composing fairly late was there a a a catalyst for that when you sort of took the plunge and started to write or had you been writing all along but it was just something that you didn't publish as such i mean how did it happen I had early ambitions um, while I was still studying um, and I was very interested in new music and some of my closest friends at college were in fact composing. And so I was forever sort of trying out pieces on their behalf and getting them to write me things. 
Um, so I was fascinated by by the stuff of it, um, by the process of it. But at the same time, there was this kind of strange specialization type of mentality, I guess, which I think we're starting to break out of now. But at the time, and this was, you know, sort of 80s, 90s, um, composers compose and performers perform and never the twain shall meet. And, you know, there was this sort of... Um, so looking back prior to that period, there, as you hinted at earlier too, I think, composers were performing musicians more or less and there wasn't this sort of you know this this division um and so you know i i think somehow i really wanted to break through that um but i got into composing in fact quite unexpectedly despite a really sort of classical music upbringing and education it was actually through a rock musician and improviser that i got into it and uh, we started jamming and playing around with ideas in little, often very low-fi, uh, simple recording studios, or you know, often just with a, a reel-to-reel machine in a in a spare room somewhere. Um, and started putting together music for experimental films, and that got bit by bit a bit more sophisticated. And occasionally, we'd get the opportunity to work in proper radio studios and um and that sort of developed this started i guess the late late 80s 88 or so would would have been where it where it started um the the friend's name that got me into it is uh, simon hunt he was an Australian as well in Berlin as I was then, um, and he was he travelled to Berlin as a member of a rock band from Sydney who were trying their luck and hoping to get a recording contract and all that sort of you know ambitious um, take on the world type of thing, which ultimately for that band it didn't happen. But um, perhaps for for us um, individually, for Simon and then for myself, that was perhaps a good thing because. What we ended up doing together, we enjoyed greatly. And and in a way, the irony was, I mean, I was in the Berlin Philharmonic by that stage. I was in the viola section. I had been for some years, and I was enjoying it immensely and learning a lot and learning repertoire and so on. But there was an aspect of it that I found quite constricting and quite conservative and, you know, it was Top, top button done up and you know I mean in those days also quite a few of the older colleagues still turned up to rehearsals in suit and tie and you know it was really quite old school and different world um, and so I, I was aware of this sort of tightness of it and at the same time um, Simon with his band found that there was a kind of similar limitation to being in a rock band you know, it had its kind of formulaic way of doing songs and, you know, the, the chords were often the same. And he in the band was the, the one that was responsible for the interesting sounds. He was kind of the, the one that had a stripped back upright piano that he'd bash the crap out of with hammers and things. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there was in, on both sides of the equation, there was this desire to sort of break out of mould that we felt somewhat limited by. 
And, yeah, so we started improvising, also doing live performances, and we did a couple of recordings for a, a very bizarre uh, Belgian label that did, you know, sort of jazz and improv music called Sub Rosa, and they took us on. And, you know, it was quite – there were heady days. It was incredibly exciting. And, you know, I'd, I'd play uh, concerts with the Philharmonic on Friday, Saturday nights, and – you know, Saturday invariably we'd then go and play somewhere live late at night after the Philharmonic concert. So I'd play a Bruckner or a Mahler symphony at 8pm and then, you know, dash over to the deepest, darkest corners of Kreuzberg and put on the black leather jacket and play improv <laughs> gigs until early in the morning. And, you know, it's just incredibly inspiring. And, and there was this strange pressure cooker atmosphere of West Berlin in those days and, and ironically or perhaps not surprisingly some of these clubs that we played at were right up against the wall they were the, you know, the last bastions of free thought in the in the western system and on the other side of the wall was you know dark stringent socialism and a sort of joyless regime that we also my wife and I got to know sort of from the inside because we helped the family. We got to know a family, a ballet dancer and her her husband and child, and they became very good friends of ours. We'd visit them quite regularly and ultimately help them escape from East Germany not long before the war came down. So, you know, it was just an incredibly inspiring time. And, uh, you know, stuff was happening, uh, not only then in my own personal and professional life, but also politically and, and mm. socially. So, you know, it was it was an incredible time to be in Berlin too. And to I feel privileged to have seen Berlin, you know, for quite a few years before the wall came down mm. um, because it sort of puts it into context. Mm. And so all of this fed into, you know, this burgeoning desire to, you know, make up my own stuff, really. Wow. I love the idea of the Berlin Phil alongside a rock band being quite similar in some ways. That's, I've, never, I've never heard that, uh, those two yeah, well, that way before, but I know what you mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah you know, they, they have their structures and they have their sort of, um, I don't know, their, their directions that they yeah. find difficult to break out of. Mm. Or expectations, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Expectations, mm. also expectations from their from their audiences. Too. Oh, exactly. The audiences also are part of that equation. You know, they they go along to either their their concert hall or to their venue with very particular things in mind that they want to get out of that evening, and and mm. they don't like often they don't like questions being asked or or, or those expectations being put into doubt, I suppose. Mm. And, um, you know, I, and I then had to uh, sort of appreciate and, and understand that I had some of those sort of preconceived ideas myself just from having had such a, a background in classical mm. music. You know, I've been playing in youth orchestras since I was you know, 10 or something. Um, and so, you know, it was, and it's a, it's a world that I still love, but I am also aware of its its limitations or its shortcomings or, or where it needs to sort of just yeah. get out of it and have fun. 
sort of thinking about expectations or sort of our conception of how a concert might be, we, of course, were very lucky to work with you at City of London Symphonia. It was a little over two years ago, I think it was now. Mm -hmm. a, a fantastic concert about Beethoven and his sort of very sad, gradual loss of hearing. And if I can work backwards in the concert, in the second half, we performed his Eroica Symphony, which you directed from the viola. Mm. Now, um, I mean, I always love it when you can play a symphony directed from an instrument like chamber music. I think people listen in a different way. I think there's a spontaneity about the performance, but it is quite unusual. Um, it shouldn't be perhaps, but it is quite unusual to be directed from the viola. To me, mm -hmm. it made sense with that piece because there's such visceral energy and it's kind of like the, the engine room in a way. It, it helps to drive things forward. It, it, it worked. But I wonder whether that's something you, you do more and more or does it depend on the repertoire uh, that you're, you're dealing with? And do some pieces presumably work better like that than others? In, in some ways, all of those things come into consideration. Mm -hmm. And the Eroica was the first sort of bigger symphonic piece that I'd ever led from the viola. I've done some other things since, but mostly smaller things. But very much, as you say, it's because of this drive that comes from the inner voices that makes it possible to start with, I think. Um, I think, obviously... Uh, Really, the only instruments in the orchestra from from which you can lead an orchestra would be either the violins, arguably also the second violins. Why not? I mean, if the seconds were, you know, if there was a, a principal second violinist who had the the concept and so on, I don't see why that can't happen. And and similarly, viola, and also in the in the way that we did it, that the violas. Uh, were standing first of all all the all the violins and violas are standing it sort of liberates mm. the sense of physicality that you need um, and also um, standing on the outside of the orchestra so that you have everyone's attention but also that you can see everyone as well I guess a principal cellist yeah uh, could work from a similar situation but being seated it's perhaps not as easy um but i mean certainly it was a it was a great experience i've done the eroica now several times but that was the first time with the city of london symphonia that i was able to put it into that 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 program with christopher clark uh and and sort of develop this new kind of a i don't know it was kind of like a long ted talk in some ways wasn't it but um <laughs> It's also an incredibly, it teaches you quite a lot about the piece. And of course, Beethoven symphonies were arguably among the first pieces that were then conducted in the way that we know today. And, and arguably, many of those pieces were also probably not conducted at their first performance. The first two symphonies almost certainly sort of directed by Beethoven, probably from a keyboard. Um, and so, you know, it was that time was the emergence of the maestro standing at the front of the orchestra um, and in many ways the advent and development of, of concert series, of concert halls, of designated venues, um, the, the burgeoning sort of middle class that had money, disposable income and 
and a certain level of, of education that, that allowed music to become this kind of thing that you sit and listen to rather than it being a function of, of a court or of a church, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's very much at the cusp of all of those different tendencies and developments in, in music's history that, that it sort of lends itself to taking hold of in that in that way, in that very direct way, and leading from from one of the instruments. Of course, also the the wind wind players have incredibly important roles to play as well. Um, and one thinks, particularly in the Iraga, of, of the principal oboe part. But mm. that's also a role that would be difficult to to lead the orchestra from because you're kind of behind the string players. At the same time, whilst you know, I was thrilled and and am always thrilled to take on that that extra responsibility it doesn't work without as you know as as leader of the orchestra in, on that occasion too it doesn't work without the the leadership and participation and active chamber music like involvement of not only the principal players, but basically everybody yeah and that's what's so exciting about it. You you cut through this tendency again, coming back to the the drawbacks of the orchestral model, is that it can become uninspiring for some of the players. And oh, the the guy up the front is going to tell us what to do, and we just have to do it. Kind of thing. That that sort of model is always problematic, and it cuts through that immediately. You have this different sense of participation. Personally, also in the way that I like to go about that, I, I like getting feedback from other players, um, even if sometimes that means, you know, that you, you'll have arguments about how it should go and, and what decisions you've made as opposed to, you know, thoughts that other members of the orchestra might have. And you you have to put that out there. You, you are then um, more open to to that kind of input. But... But ultimately, I find that that's, that speaks to musicians in orchestras too. They like that sense of being asked what, what their feelings are. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I have, you know, very fond memories of that whole project. Yeah, it was, it was really lovely. We, and then in the, the first half of the concert, of course, we performed Testament, uh, one mm-hmm. of your fabulous pieces. And, but you did conduct that. Um, I, I personally love it when... A composer conducts his or her work because, um, well, as long as they're quite good at conducting, which of course you are very good at conducting, um, because then you, you know, you, you, they know what to listen for, they know what they want from a piece, and you feel, you know, if they're pleased, then you must be close to, to what they were imagining. How is it from your side of the baton, as it were? Because uh, I've also got composer friends who find hearing their music almost torturous sometimes, um, but maybe it's good to have the power over the over the creative creative process in in the concert as it were i don't know how do you feel about but, it yeah for me it definitely falls into two categories um a piece like testament that has been played a lot that i didn't actually conduct the first performances of although in its earlier version which originally the piece was written for a group of 12 violas and i premiered it with my former colleagues of the Philharmonic Viola section. I'd left the orchestra by then, but I was one of the 10 players. Um, 
and another viola colleague, Henrik Schaefer, who's since left the orchestra and has a very successful career above all in Scandinavia as a conductor. Um, he conducted the performance. And I must say, then I'm very glad to let someone else sort of sort out the nitty gritty of how the piece works. Um, best of all is actually also that I'm out in the, in the hall listening to the rehearsals because then I find I can judge it more objectively, have a little bit of distance from it and, and not be sort of also caught up in the perhaps technical difficulties of con yeah. conducting. Um, I, I, I was once in a position where I went to Amsterdam to be present for rehearsals of the world premiere of my violin concerto um, and with Frank Petit Zimmermann as soloist and the Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam and on the second day of rehearsals the conductor had to return home because of family illness um, and I had to then jump in and conduct my own piece which was frightfully hard and I hadn't really sort of sat down and worked out how to approach yeah. it as a conductor. I was, I was, you know, and um, so that was, you know, a baptism of fire, but it was a great thrill. They're a fabulous orchestra, of course, and they, you know, they were incredibly supportive because they were also aware of the, the challenge of the situation. But, yeah, so I much prefer first performances at, the, at least to be sitting outside of the, mm -hmm. beyond the fourth wall, as it were. But then I love once, the you know, the ice has been broken and I know how the piece goes from the outside, I love being part of that process. And um, Testament is a case in point, a piece that I've conducted a lot um, and recorded once as well. Um, and... You know, it's it's a it's a thrill to be able to tease out the sounds just as you want them. Mm. Talking of the sounds in that piece, you, you had quite specific requirements, but um, I think it was all the string players had to play with rosinless bows, so it basically doesn't really make any sound. Um, obviously, sort of alluding to Beethoven's gradual deafness, I, I, I believe. How mm -hmm. did you how did you discover that? Um, and then including it because it became very much a sound world. It wasn't an effect. It became part of the sound world of the piece. How did you then build it into the kind of compositional process? Mm. So as I said, the, the first version of the piece was for 12 violas. And so, in fact, then in that version, every single musician that's playing the piece uh, has, you know, these two bows. Um, I came across the, the sound quite by accident, in a way, um, in that I, I left my bow with my regular um, violin maker in, uh, in Berlin and for a rehair. I went to pick it up and normally uh, he puts a first kind of layer of, of rosin onto the bow before I pick it up because, as you know, it takes quite a while and quite a bit of, you know, rubbing the, the, the rosin into the hairs of the bow to get a first basic layer that sort of sits and stays there. And I got home. I needed to get some practice done. 
took the newly rehead bow out of my case, started playing, and then thought, oh, he's not put some rosin, put, hasn't put any rosin on it yet. And in fact, my first reaction was a bit one of annoyance because uh, it takes, as I say, it takes a while and I just need to get some work done. But then I just started playing around with it and thought, this, this is quite remarkable. And this is exactly the sound I was looking for. And to be honest, the, the, the first sort of metaphor that, that came to mind wasn't so much the one of the, of the you know, not being able to hear the sounds clearly, but of the, the image of, of uh, Beethoven's quill on the parchment paper writing, mm-hmm. either writing music or in the case of his Eilenstadt Testament, the, the document that he wrote from this, this um, uh, institution where he, he went to try and find a solution to his multiple health problems, the, the most alarming of which was the loss of hearing. Um, and this is where he wrote this letter. I mean, it was intended as the last will and testament um, because he had seriously toyed with the idea of suicide and was at such a point of despair. And he wrote this letter then to his brothers, but he never sent it. It was only discovered after his death among, among his papers. And it's by, by Beethoven's sort of standards of handwriting, it's actually quite legible. And he obviously put quite a bit of time into it. He'd probably written a, a rough version and then wrote it out neat, as it were, and compared also to his sketchbooks, where there's a combination of also written words and music notation. Some of it is just done so, so quickly that it's really hard to decipher. I sometimes even wonder when he came back to these things after several weeks or months to, to sort of work on the pieces in detail, how on earth he even remembered what... I know I find it difficult when I'm writing things down quickly. I come back to it later and think, hmm, what was it I meant with this <laughs> in front of me? But um, So it was actually that was the, the, the metaphor that came to mind first, but then I realised later, oh, it has this other side to it. You know, it has this sort of ill-defined haziness, which seemed somehow to to also speak to the the dilemma that he was going through with his own health. Yeah. Um, one one aspect of your your career, I suppose, that we didn't get to appreciate as such in our last in our concert with you was your sort of solo and chamber work, and Obviously, you've probably been asked this many, many times, but it is fascinating to me that you were in the Berlin Philharmonic. And it's hard enough, I think, for a musician to leave an orchestra and then continue a freelance career playing in an orchestra. That's quite a big step. But to leave an institution like the Berlin Phil and then sort of launch, in a way, this incredible career of composing and performing solos and chamber music. First of all, it must have been, was it a tough decision? um, And also, how easy was that transition afterwards? Were were there sort of shocks along the way or or, or did it sort of just evolve naturally? Uh, It certainly wasn't an easy decision to make, no. Mm. It took quite a long time. Um, And... I was toying with the idea for quite some time before, again, sort of <laughs> writing an important letter, sitting down. Like Beethoven, I did a couple of 
trial runs of that letter of resignation too when it came to it. But um, yeah, I, I then, I was also, I must say, encouraged hugely by my wife, Heather, who's also a freelance artist herself. She's a painter. And so you know, she was um, pivotal in in this sort of transition from performing musician to composer and creative musician because she was the creative type. And I, I guess also there was always this kind of envy and admiration but also envy for, for that life that she was leading. Um, and she was only too encouraging to sort of you know, help along that path in the discussions we had about it. It took, as I say, quite a while to, to get my head around it. I also needed to feel that I had enough um, sort of commissioned work coming up that I wasn't, I mean, we had two young children by that time too. Mm. So, you know, I, I couldn't just um, abandon my my um, responsibilities as a family father. And um, so it took a while. It then was also once uh, I had left the orchestra and we then also returned to Australia at that time. It was an opportunity for us from a family and, and you know, private point of view to offer our children a chance to experience life in Australia, to really get to know the rest of the family, their grandparents, etc. So it had multiple aspects to it. But I would admit also in that first year there were times where I thought, what have I done? You know, I'd, I'd left this sort of family of colleagues and kind of support group that one has around one uh, behind. And I must say also there were great colleagues in that time that I was obviously getting more and more interested in composition. I had nothing but support from so many of them, including directly also my colleagues in the viola section who... Um, you know, were, were incredibly supportive. They were curious. They, you know, other colleagues would also help out, particularly wind and brass players, if I had questions about their instruments, which, of course, I wasn't as familiar with from a playing point of view. I got all the insider tips, as it were, from some of the greatest instrumentalists yeah, around. Um, yeah. And um, so, you know, I was, it was very fortuitous in that regard. And so, you know, there was this shock, obviously, of that all not being there all of a sudden. Uh, it may have been different had I left the orchestra but remained in Berlin, perhaps, but it was the time for a change. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about before before we started the, the formal part of the conversation, this is a time also of massive change for a lot of people and... and for, for my wife and myself as well, this this is going to be a time of change, of sort of perhaps moving out into the country and leaving the city for a while and uh, and working out how on earth we all make a living in, in a post-COVID world. But anyway, that's that's for another time to to work out and worry about. But um, so yeah, I mean, it had it had all sorts of aspects of a a pivotal shift um, and 
yeah, I, I then after that initial shock, the first year was not always easy. Then I, after that, I, I kind of embraced it entirely and uh, I've never regretted it. Mm. Brett, it's been, well, it's been a pleasure and an, an inspiration to talk to you today. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for giving up your time. And, My um, pleasure. And I know we're, we're trying to, you know, post-COVID allowing, we're trying to make sure that you can come back and collaborate at CLS again. So I look forward to that very much. I do too. And, uh, yeah, looking forward hugely to just performing again. It's, uh, it's already been too long, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it has indeed. Yeah. With other people. Yeah. 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 Very best wishes to you too, Alex. Thank you very so much. much. Thank you. Cheers.